Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was a teenage anarchist Looking for revolution I had the style, I had the ambition Read all the offers, I knew the Russogans There was a war, but the class war I was ready to set the world on fire I was a teenage anarchist Looking for revolution I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, but there's the way you open it and the way you close it kind of ties it back around. Mm-hmm. And I fully wept when reading the final like page because it was just so beautiful and happy and triumphant. And you talk about how you're holding your daughter's hand. You know, you're obviously still young. And I mean, A, it must have been a big decision to write an autobiography at this stage in your life with so much yet still to happen. But B, so much has happened, particularly in the last two years, um, that's given you more than enough, you know, personal material to draw from. I guess the first question really is, where do you start? (laughs) I mean, you know, the first thing with the book was just going back through and and transcribing the journals. Like, my book's based on journals, so I had years and years worth of journals that I had to go through and literally type. I wanted to type them all in. I didn't want to, like read through and just cherry pick from it I wanted to have the process of going through and retyping everything even just so I'd like remember stuff and if it would jog any memories you know um but so that was that was the start of it you know like I decided I wanted to do a book pretty soon like within a couple months after coming out as trans right and like part of that was thinking that okay maybe like the best way to go forward right now is to reconcile with the past you know and just kind of like 
think about everything that's happened. Um, and then also it seemed like something that I could do where I wouldn't have to deal with people. So, I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is true up until the book tour part. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then it's the opposite of that. Like, damn it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was where you start with it. But I mean, you know, honestly, like the hardest part was ending it, you know, for the reasons that you stated, like where, you know, I, I'm still young. And like to be able to like, give yourself the ability to continue on living your life and like uh not be contained to like a character in a book you know like that was tricky to do i didn't know how to do it and it, that was that was the hardest part for sure let's talk about your upbringing and your family life from an early age if that's okay yeah uh-huh. um you obviously moved around a lot as part of your dance job in the military i wonder if you could tell me about a few of the places that you lived memories that specifically spring to mind and perhaps how moving about but also time in those certain places maybe shaped the young adult that you right. go on to be sure i am um, yeah i was you know i was born in fort benning georgia but i maybe lived there for two or three months lived in toby hannah pennsylvania cincinnati ohio for uh fort hood texas and then we moved when i was like seven years old we moved to italy and my dad worked for nato then and um that was like you know, seven years old, you really start to have, become your own person and you really start to remember things too. And I lived in Italy from seven to 12. And that was just like, it was like a different world. You know, it was really like, um, a, a kind of magical experience. Uh, you know, everything from like where we did sports, you know, like baseball and football and stuff like that was in this extinct volcano called Carney park. Wow. You drove up the volcano and then went into the center of the volcano and there was just sports fields and golf courses and swimming pools and stuff like that. And I mean, you know, you're, you're in this inside a volcano. Um, and then also, you know, going to school there, the school like sent you on all these amazing field trips to, you know, to Rome, to like Siena, to, to so many places. Um, Rome is one of the most epic places on earth, isn't for it? For sure, yeah, yeah. And so at that age, I can't even imagine. Right, and Naples, but Naples itself, and I mean, we lived in Lago Patria, but um, it, it was just like, it was un, unreal, you know, like it was a really magical place and a magical time for me. Um, and you also kind of like existed inside of a bubble in a way where like we didn't have TV. There was one one channel that was an American channel, the Armed Forces Network or whatever. And the programming was like a year behind. So you were like culturally a year behind from everyone else in the States. And in a pre-internet age, you were really just cut off from, from your world back there. So I moved back when I was like 12. My parents divorced, moved to Florida to with my mother and my brother and moved in with my grandmother. And that was like coming back to MTV, you know? And I remember vividly, it was like, Michael Jackson's Black or White, Red Hot Chili Peppers were just blowing up and like Nirvana were all happening right then. So that was like coming back to that. But I really didn't, I I didn't connect well with kids when I moved back. I just, I don't know, it was a different experience. Divorce is hard on anyone, I think, Uh, as a child of divorce, you know, it does definitely affect your your view of relationships first and foremost but the way you talk and describe about the effect of your parents divorce on you was particularly rough I think because you had a certain lifestyle that came with your dad's profession right right and you know for for want of a better word kind of like a privilege well you said it a magical right and so then you kind of you know not only do you deal with the divorce but then you you're in this kind of this totally new environment it was it like your whole world had literally been flipped upside down and smashed completely and i mean you know that wasn't something i realized until i was out of the military environment of just like 
what the military world was, you know, or what it was like. And, and there was privilege that went along with that for sure, especially because my dad was an officer. He was a West Point graduate. He wasn't like even, there was a difference between enlisted servicemen and officers, you know? Um, and my dad was high ranking. So there was like respect that went along with that for my family, you know? Um, Did you have an instant infrastructure of friends as well because there was other families with kids? Sure, there, there was, but it's, in those social circles that you were floating around in, right? But it, you know, the neighborhood I lived in and the families were all really mixed because it was NATO. It wasn't just specifically American families. Like my best best friends growing up were British. Um, we <laughs> Richard and Nick Bevins. They were they were my best friends, and they lived right next door. Um, but uh, but yeah, there was like Australians, there was Germans, there was just like all types of families you know and all different branches of service and there's a there was a big navy base there too and there was a marines base um but you know it was odd just because you knew that kids would move away and, and it would be really abrupt where all of a sudden a, a parent would get you know restationed somewhere and they would, then it was time to go so you usually lived in a place for like three maybe four years tops and then then got switched somewhere else so that obviously prepared you for life on the road because as you say again in the book you know touring is kind of like and being in a band you can spend every day with someone plan your whole life around them for five years whatever and then the minute they're out of the band it's like oh, i'll never see that person ever again yeah <laughs> and it's really, kind of a weird really, similar yeah, parallel yeah, isn't it? it it is it is it's really stark the way it works though where it's like all of a sudden just <laughs> boom that's it vanished. erased yeah. um what was your relationship like with your dad pre your parents divorce i mean was he a, uh, an affectionate father did you feel close to him um, Did his profession uh, shape your opinion of him in any way? I really respected him. You know, I was really like kind of in awe of my dad, and it was—it's hard not to be when you know your your dad is like is, is a GI Joe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. He's like got his his boots and his fatigues, and like people salute him when he walks by, and and uh, carries that with him. But you know, there's a certain amount of coldness that comes along with just military life. I think that like, you know, for soldiers, they, they're like trained to be a certain way. Like that's no, that's not imagining anything like soldiers are, are you know, they go through rigorous training to become that way. And there's yeah. a coldness then. My dad was in the army as well, not at the same level and only for a few years, but there is definitely, as you say, a, a kind of a psychological process that they go through to toughen them and harden them to make them soldiers yeah, yeah for, for sure you know um but at the same time like i don't know i i loved my dad you know and like um while he was often like you know really involved with work and that meant he'd be away sometimes you know like when he was around we had you know whatever relationship we had you know we'd play catch we'd do whatever you know my we enjoyed like my dad really liked models i do a lot of models with him um but uh but after my parents' divorce, that just, like, drove a real wedge between us. You know, it, like, never never really reconnected after that. What did you go through uh, in those? Because turbulent teen years are called turbulent teen years for a reason, you know. <laughs> right. pu puberty and uh, anxiety and all those things hit anyone anyway. Um, first of all, with the parental situation, what did you go through? Because assumingly your mum was a single parent and she struggled. Right. And often is kind of the way is when the parent's preoccupied with... How am I going to make ends meet? As you know, again from experience, the kid goes off the rails and. Right, right. Well, you know, I on the one hand we, we were really lucky because we moved in with my grandmother. Right. And so there was, you know, another like uh, another figure around, uh, another family member, an older, older, older figure. Um, 
but so we, you know, went from living in a really nice house, really comfortable existence to all being crammed into my grandmother's condo in, in Naples, Florida. And Naples is like, whenever I meet someone and, and mention Naples, they're like, oh yeah, my grandma lives there. It's like, yeah, everyone's <laughs> fucking grandma lives in Naples, Florida. Um, but it's it's not... where people go to, to literally die. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just not, there's more now, but there was nothing going on for youth there, you know, nothing for kids. And kids are much rather like, not seen or heard you know um but uh with lacking especially anything positive or healthy to do I definitely like and kind of feeling like an outcast then like I definitely sought out destructive things you know like I was like I'm going to I'm gonna I'm gonna smoke cigarettes I'm gonna get this habit down this tastes disgusting it makes me want to throw up but I will smoke and then from there being like you know I'm going to find drugs I'm going to find whatever um, How old were you when you first tried cannabis? Uh, I think 12. Wow, maybe, 12 that is young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a whirlwind year because it was like smoking weed for the first time, doing cocaine for the first time. Cocaine as well when you were 12? 13. 13, yeah. wow. And then same with LSD. Wow. So my friend took uh, acid in school when he was 14. And I just, I'll never forget it. I was like, you're the craziest bastard I know. <laughs> like, why put yourself through that? Um, I mean... I didn't get into any of that stuff till maybe 16, 17, 18, a bit later on. I don't know. What's the effect? Um, I don't know. You know, I like... Does it damage you, do you think? Because you obviously seem like a totally sane, amazing person now. <laughs> <Yeah>. so... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's just like my chemistry or, or maybe there's like consequences I've yet to realize. Right, or, right. Or maybe... I, I always make the joke. I mean, my brother is like six foot seven. That if I wouldn't have smart, started smoking cigarettes when I was thirteen years old, that I I, I would be that tall too, you know. Um, so maybe it like stunted my growth a right. little bit. But um, so where I mean, is that kind of stuff readily available on the, sort of, on the playground sure. or it was, it was easier to find than alcohol yeah, because it was of the just there, you know. Um, and I remember specifically, you know, there was this uh, Native American half half. I don't know how to phrase this, half American, half Native American. Right, right, right. Or something yeah, like yeah. that. Um, that went around to all the elementary schools that would do these, like, demonstrations, you know, like, do the dress up in the traditional, like, seminal garb and, like, do dances and stuff like that. And that was, like, sixth grade. And then the next year, he's, like, my pot dealer. And so it was, like, you know, it was just there. And it was really easy to find. I will say this is making me think of it. Um, in the book, the one thing that was, like, that was left out of the book that I really like every time I read it I, I kind of almost regret it um, but there was reasoning for it is like I'm talking about um, in high school getting in a fight where the one kid comes up from behind me clocks me in the side of the head we get in a fight I hit him with a paint can and then like go over and hide by the shopping mall because they were chasing me around the truth is I was actually on acid when that fight happened and then I had to fill out a police report while I was on acid too. The reason it wasn't mentioned in the book was just because I hadn't mentioned drugs yet sequentially so it felt weird to like say that there. And Boom, then, I'm on acid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, out of nowhere. No, no, yeah, out of nowhere. Like not talking about any of that but that was that was the truth of what happened actually. I'm yet to try acid. It's always kind of terrified me. Mushrooms I love. I mean I'm much more of a psychedelic person than, a, right. than, than, than an upper person um what's tripping like when you're a teenager um kind of terrifying yeah <laughs> you know, like especially that. when you're getting battered right right no totally but i i was also always like you know i was aware i was experimenting in a in a really like 
actual way. Not just like, well, I'm gonna take this and see what this does to me. While I didn't have the words for dysphoria or knowing what being transgender was or anything like that, I was experimenting in a way of like, what will this do to the way my brain is working right now? And so I would smoke weed and I would recognize like, this does something to my dysphoria. Even if I didn't know the word dysphoria, like it would do something to the way I felt and I've realized that. Same with acid, same with alcohol, same with cocaine. There were like definitive results that I would I would be able to tell by them and that really shaped what I was drawn towards. I loved smoking weed because it eased my dysphoria. And I didn't I loved I loved cocaine and I loved alcohol, but for different reasons, because they like killed the dysphoria. They like numbed it and made me like a different person. Not in a good way, but in a way that I, I just I recognized it, you know. There's a moment in the book when you're talking about being in the basement drinking beer um, in your mum's wedding dress, <laughs> yeah. and which kind of led me to sort of think that obviously so much of the book that you talk about and so much of what you've been through has been traumatic and painful, but there are moments like that one for me, and maybe this is just because I've got a weird sick sense of humour, I don't know, <laughs> but I was like, some of it sounds really fun, yeah. <laughs> kind of like you're in your own little world, and I mean... Is that wrong to, to assume? Were there moments amidst all the chaos and the, you know, feelings of disalignment and, <laughs> and, and as you say, like dysphoria, were there moments when you were like, I'm in heaven right now? Yeah, sure. No, totally. And, and um, I mean, there were definitely like fun moments and there's, but also like, you know, that scene or whatever, that was just like, it wasn't like I was sitting there crying or something like that. It was like, I am so bored. Oh my God. You know, like I'm sitting here, I've got a couple Miller lights and I'm like, I'll just, I'm wearing my, my mother's fucking wedding dress and, you know, being 13 years old, you know, and, and stuck in the middle of the Mark Twain National Forest with no friends because it's summer and I'm visiting my dad on, on an army base in Missouri, you know, um, but, but it was fun, you know, and it was fun being a teenager and even like the, the shitty stuff, like getting in fights and everything like that, there was a sense of adventure to it, you know. What about your relationship with your mum? growing up because it sounds like without being too presumptuous you sort of put through a, a bit of a hard time <laughs> I, I, I did put my, my, my mother through a bit of a hard time that's like an understatement to say the least yeah. uh, but you know to my mom's credit she was always there to bail me out of jail and she, she always had my back but I was I was a difficult teenager, you know, like I got arrested a lot and I got beat up a lot and I got like expelled from school all the time and I just I was really like, you know, dead set in my ways. And, um, but my mom, I was always close with, you know, like even if we fought, um, I was always close with her. When you had the situation with the police and, you know, you go into detail in that in the book, I don't want to ruin, basically if anyone's listening to this and they think I really want to read the book, yeah. I don't just want to give them a, a step-by-step, you know, synopsis of the entire thing. Darth Vader is my father. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tell me about that experience and how that affected your worldview because that's got to put a chip on your shoulder at that age when you're kind of a bit angry and pit well angry and pissed off at the world anyway. Um, I wondered if you could just sort of explain first of all what happened and sure. and how that left certain uh, feelings inside you that you then had to get out right. through music ultimately. Well, you know, this was like I was 14 years old and it was like maybe two years into me discovering punk rock, right? And I was really, like, at first into the nihilism of punk rock, like the live fast, die young thing, wanted to be Sid Vicious, whatever, because I really didn't see a future. I didn't think I'd ever escape South Florida. I just thought I'd be dead by the time I was, like, you know, early 20s or something like that. Um, 
and I'd already just like I had previously maybe a month or two before gotten arrested for like having some seed marijuana seeds and stems in my wallet that I got busted with and it was on school grounds which meant it was a felony automatically so I already had that um, that charge against me but it was the 4th of July in Naples Florida and 4th of July they do the fireworks celebration at the beach and there's like these little boardwalk pathways that connect the street onto the actual sand at the beach and you got to walk over them to get on there so fourth of july again there's like there's thousands of people there at the beach and i was going down there to meet some friends walked up onto the boardwalk was looking to see if i could spot any of them and there are two police officers there and one cop is like hey get off the boardwalk so i turned around and i got off the boardwalk walked to the end of it back towards the street cop comes up to me again and he's like get off the boardwalk and i'm like I'm off the boardwalk, you know, and I immediately started to argue the point because I was off the boardwalk. And it was like, you know, maybe a second into talking, grabs me, drags me over to the car, slams me down onto the car, kicks my leg apart, legs apart. And it's like, you know, July, so Florida sun baking on the, on the car all day long. It was hot. And so I like trying to push up off the car, starts slamming my head into the car. I like got lippy at that point and started saying whatever. They handcuffed me, throw me in the back of the cop car. I spit on the cop at one point when he was like yelling at me through the window. Then they take me out of the car for some reason. And like when they took me out, they grabbed me by the by the uh, inner elbows or whatever. And it was like all the pressure then was on my wrists, which were cuffed behind my back. And I kind of like kicked my legs out. More cops had showed up at this point. They grabbed my feet, brought me around the other side of the cop car in the center of the street, threw me face first down onto the pavement. One cop puts like a knee in his back, one with a boot on my head, and they hogtied me, tied my ankles to my wrist, and then they're carrying me around like a fucking suitcase. <laughs> and uh, threw me into the back of the car and took me down to jail and charged me with resisting arrest with violence and battery on an officer. Both felony charges, and they charged me as an adult. So... You know, it was really my first experience where, you know, I was I was in the wrong when I got arrested for the weed, you know, or the, the seeds and stems. It was a dumb mistake, but like legitimately I had seeds and stems and I was on school grounds and I was caught. And this to me was different in that like I hadn't done anything. I was off the boardwalk. I complied with the officer and it was really like blatant harassment to me and I could tell that I was being targeted just because of the way I looked because I was a young punk kid yeah punk kid yeah Yeah, you know with like spiky hair and a safety pin through my ear or whatever um and so it was eye-opening then and seeing you know like everything that happened afterwards I I I would spend a summer on house arrest couldn't leave my house was eventually convicted given 180 hours of community service and because of all this too, you know, I had to sober up because I was then receiving regular drug, drug testing. Um, so I had a lot of time to think, but um, still into punk rock then, you know, but really in a different way of where, where it became more about the politics and it became more about the social justice issues. And, and that was what appealed to me then. And, and just like, it was an eye-opening experience that really politicized me. You talk about Guns N' Roses being the band that actually sort of kicked the doors open and said this is, uh, you know, a dangerous rock and roll band. Right. This is a band that, you know, you can sort of identify with as well because you kind of don't really know whether they're a guy or a chick and, you know, they're sort of blurring the lines and there's all this stuff going on. Um, and at that time, I think they re- really were like the most dangerous band in the 100%. world. Weren't yeah. they? Uh-huh. Well, I, and, and I mean, like, you know, even like things that are like I look back and kind of cringe on now, but like like the the artwork, you know, like the original cover that's inside of Appetite for Destruction of like the robot and the and the woman on the ground, like 
I looked at that as an eight or nine year old and I was like, whoa, you know, like this, I can't let my parents see this. And, and I mean, again, Grunts and Roses are so cringeworthy in so many ways, like with, like, you know, with uh, the song One in a Million, for instance, like is, is a terribly racist, fucking homophobic song. But hearing that at eight or nine years old, like I knew that I knew that it was wrong. I knew that it was like, whoa, this is dangerous, you know, like um, so they were just a band that was totally different than like Warrant or Poison <laughs> or any of those bands who I could yeah. tell were like kind of bubblegum compared yeah. to Guns N' Roses. You know, like you looked at that picture of Guns N' Roses inside Appetite and you could tell they were fucked up. Like you, even in a cassette tape, you could see that their eyes were red, <laughs> like it cashed out and that the Delph was clearly wasted, you know, and I didn't even know what that meant, but I could tell. Um, and you're like, I want a piece of that. Is that how you <laughs> felt? Were you like... For sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean that 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 the dangerousness of them was appealing. Like I mm-hmm. wanted to be like them, them in that way, not just look like them or anything like that. But I wanted that that uh, that whatever it was they had that allure to them, I wanted a part of. Will you be going to check them out on the Not In This Lifetime reunion run? Have you already been? I feel like we could do a whole other conversation just talking about Guns N' Roses, all right? We, you know, Let's um, deviate for a slight second, then. Uh, I, we played Reading and Leeds with them in, like, 2010, 2011, uh-huh. right? when it was, you know, just Axel. Yeah, yeah. And that was, like, a really disappointing experience, uh, to say the least. And I... This, this reunion tour, if you want to call it like that, I... I think it's bullshit. You can't do it without Izzy. You can't do it without, like, at least Matt Sorum, you know? like It's weird how Steven Adler will sort of be there, like, every third gig for one song, and he'll be in the pictures at the end, like, hey, I'm here, I'm here, guys. And you're like, but as you say, without Izzy and without the full lineup, without the classic lineup. It's not a reunion, then. It's like a half reunion. It's just, it just, he got back Duff and Slash. And, and, and what's the keyboard player's name? Not Izzy, uh... Gibby, is it? I don't even know. <laughs> no, well, there was Gilby, but there right. was yeah, Dizzy, Dizzy, Dizzy. There you go. Reed, yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say this, though, in Axel's defense, I'm the first to shoot him down, particularly in recent years, because he's. Jesse Hughes from Eagles of Death Metal once said a great quote to me. He said that Axel Rose is like, going back to the Star Wars thing, he's like Darth Vader in that, you know, he's become this caricature villain, but we can save him before he. You know, has to fully grow, and then it's kind of ironic because now Jesse's kind of almost become that, and again, that's a whole other thing as well. Right. But he played with ACDC a few months back, and he absolutely crushed it. He was so good. Right. But that's a different vocal spectrum. Sure. It's a different physical performance. It's a totally different bag. The gun stuff is obviously a lot more high energy, and you kind of don't really want to see him do your wheezing and out of breath and. Sure, and running sure, around sure. Trying, trying, trying to hit those notes. ACDC, though, he did he did crush that. I will I will say though, like with the ACDC stuff, I I didn't I feel like I've noticed that he he's seems to be making this effort to be mm-hmm. more there, you yeah, know, and to like uh, to be, to be on time, yeah, to, to be, be humble, time, yeah, to be humble. Like even I saw something recently where he said something uh, against Trump, where I was like, right, Axel, good for you. you know, like, <laughs> what did he say? Do you remember? Off the top I don't of your remember head? specifically, but it was you know it was it was something that was like right on, you know. Nice. Yeah. And Green Day was another key band. Basket Case, obviously the single, huge, but I mean just Dookie as an, an album as a whole. Sure. Yeah. Um, was that what really got you into? Sort 
sort of starting your own band. That was yeah. That was that it. Was my first my first show, not even first punk show, but my first show was Green Day, and I just you know walked away from that experience like I I'm gonna do that. I want we're starting a punk band. Me and my best friend Dustin, who went to the show, like sitting waiting for his dad to come and pick us up, decided to start a band right then and there. You know. You have to choose how you answer this question carefully because you're going on tour with them soon. What do you think of a song like King for a Day by Green Day? Do you know the song I mean? Which is that off warning? It's off Nimrod and it's about trying on your mum's stockings and lingerie, essentially. (laughs) But it's kind of like a comic tongue-in-cheek pastiche of that idea and uh-huh. it's got the sort of Benny Hill brass and I mean it's a, ki- it's a kick-ass kind of upbeat fun song but in the context of kind of this conversation today and how much would Green Day mean to you right. and then this is when it becomes a whole other conversation of do you know what I mean certain bands can mean so much but then they have this one thing that perhaps is in not disagreement but do you know what I mean in what's a less harsh way of saying confliction um, <laughs> do you know what, what i'm hinting saying. at i get what you're saying i i don't know the songs so okay it's hard to comment on the song i'll have to go and listen to it but i do know what you're saying yes but you know i can still like relegate certain things to a time and place you know of like i know what green day meant to me when i was 14 and what they mean to me now i mean i'm gonna go on tour with them and we'll see how that goes and you know if 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 I doubt this would happen, but if they were like horrible jerks for some reason or something like that, you know, and I walked away from the tour with a bad taste in my mouth. Have you not toured with them before? Oh, well, we played shows with them in 2005. Right. Giant Stadium and we did another another two shows and they were they were great. You know, they were really nice to us and, and really didn't have to bring us along to play those shows. It's not like we we drew anything or like <laughs> those arenas. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were fine on their own. Um so I, I, I don't think they'd be dicks, you know, or anything like that. But that wouldn't necessarily take away the that wouldn't take away the impact they had on me when I was fourteen years old, you know. Um, what did the impact of nine eleven have on the punk scene? It's never something I've really thought about as a Brit. Right. Um, you know, obviously it changed the whole world, but on that sort of level, I never thought that actually the government sort of control that came in after that event would filter down into you know, a reactionary scene like the one you were in and kind of stamp out a lot of the good stuff that made it special in the first place. But you allude to that a bit in the book. I wonder if you could get into that a bit more now, just the actual direct impact that that atrocity and the government's reaction to it had on this thriving punk scene that you were a part of coming up. This is more like the anarchist punk scene, you know, the the activist side of the punk scene. As opposed to Pennywise, no effects. Right, right, right. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, So, like... There was a real movement, like a worldwide protest movement, that was building um, through the through the eighties into the nineties, late nineties. That I really think, like, kind of ended with nine eleven, and a lot of that was just like you know Homeland Security Act and fear that came from it. Like, you know, I remember going to like, I didn't go to the Seattle protest, the WTO protest, but I went to a protest shortly after um, that was in Washington D.C. Where you know, like. I was part of an affinity group or an activist group where we like, you know, it was organized where like everyone met before the protest happened in these huge warehouse locations across DC and had a plan. This is how we're going to shut down the city. We're going to take over city blocks. Um, And I was part of a group and you went in and like people had PVC pipes that they locked their arms inside of with chains and formed a big circle so it blocked the entire intersection and everyone had a job and you know once it happened like cops swarmed in they're riding motorcycles through crowds of people running people over beating people up like 
it was intense. It was insane. You know, it was basically a riot. Um, and, and like that was something that happened before 9-11, where after 9-11, it was like you just knew that if you were to get arrested in those situations, you would be charged as a terrorist and you would potentially spend the rest of your life in jail or disappear. So there was like there was just a real climate change, a real like. Yeah, I don't even know how to explain it other than other than that way, you know, but it was heavy and it was you know a, a, like the end of an era right totally the end of an era and the where, end of a dream almost without right. being too dramatic but and where kind of was where the activist scene i really think had to rethink itself and rethink its approach but also it just like you know 9-11 as a whole just like stunned everybody you know like a, there was this weird like numbness that was omnipresent for like i don't even know how long afterwards you know well it's kind of still really sure reeling now isn't it yeah. with everything um on the flip side to that when you sign with fat records which you know to me as an outsider looking in is a credible label uh, and it produced a lot of the yeah. great punk bands that i love growing up when you guys sign with them obviously and i was never aware of this you had people throwing stink bombs at you on stage sure bleach yeah graffitiing and tagging up your van i mean that's extreme that reaction um you were obviously heartbroken right when that started happening and devastated More or pissed, pissed off. off yeah more pissed off than heartbroken i mean heartbroken in ways sure but like it was just like it was enraging you know um because we went from you know we we started out putting route records ourselves to like going to a you know really small diy labels to like slightly bigger indie labels and then signed a fat for our second record and that was moving from no idea records and so those are both you know independent punk labels and to us signing to fat like was an achievement and it made sense too because while other people might not have realized it like we had all grown up listening to no effects we had all grown up listening to other bands that were on fat records so it was like cool like our childhood heroes want to put out records for us now you know what was it like when you got the news did you received a call direct from mike right yeah, well, um, Toby, who used to work at the label, like asked us first if we want to do a seven inch for their seven inch of the month club, and I was like, well, we don't really want to do a seven inch. We how about doing our next full length? And if you don't ask, like, you don't get, right? Right. Yeah. And so he was like, okay, let me ask Mike. And then like a day later, Mike called, and you know, I'm super awkward, being like, oh my god, I'm talking to Fat Mike on the phone right now. This is so weird. How does he introduce <laughs> himself as Fat Mike? Uh, no, it was this is Mike. Right. You know, um, yeah, like, which one, the skinny one or the? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Mike, who? Sorry. Um, <laughs> and and when it was just like you know it was surreal for us, and also it was like you know we're saying sign here, but like there was never any like actual contract. Was ever signed. I love that yeah, as well. It was just a handshake deal, you know. A gentleman's agreement. I right, love that. Yeah, and and also like. We had made our record before that for like $800, right? And so Fat Mike offered us $25,000. And that was just like all the fucking money in the world, you know? And we were dead broke. Like, um, but to us, it didn't, I don't know, it just made sense. And like to then go to this place where like, you know, the, the things you mentioned, like stink bombs and stuff like that, that was like on the, uh, on the small scale of it. Like having our tires slashed or being in situations where... I remember this one one show we played in Brooklyn that was a free show, free show, right? And, Sellouts. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and there was like an altercation outside of the show where, again, uh, over us being sellouts or not. And, and I looked over and there was a dude who had picked up a brick and he's like a punk kid and he picks up a brick. And I'm like, 
just had this moment of realization where I was like, this kid will potentially bash my brains in with a brick because he doesn't like that we're putting out records on fat records. We haven't even put out the record yet, but he doesn't like it. And he might potentially kill us. So what the fuck does the punk scene really mean? What the fuck does anarchy really mean? Fuck this. That was just that moment for me. I really like never looked back. That was when you that. tapped out, was it? Yeah, I was just done with it. I really saw it for all it was. You and know, after, completely like, understandable. Years of playing like benefit shows, like doing, being a part of an activist scene, being a part of a movement or whatever, to just have it be like that, you know? And 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 especially because like it just went against everything the punk scene taught me of like think for yourself you know question authority think for yourself right think for yourself i was thinking for myself i was taking like this is my situation these are my options this is what i know and this is the choice i'm going to make for myself and it has no effect on anybody else and to like see that kind of hypocrisy then in the punk scene it was just it was eye-opening you know what was it like to then go from there? Because uh, Mike apparently you say didn't like the second record, right? And sort of told you as much. Well, no, no, so the that, third record. Oh, the you third. Like searching for former clarity. Yeah. Right. So we did as the eternal. As a, sorry, cowboy. your second with Fat Amen. Right, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So as the Eternal Cowboy was our first record with them, and it like it did really well, and yeah. like immediately we got major label interest. Yeah, yeah. And labels were calling us, and um, we hired a manager, and we started like getting taken out to crazy dinners and being courted, and like offers got up to like around a million dollars and we made a dvd documentary we're never going home about yeah, it because yeah. we i was like oh it's our chance to do our own version of the great rock and roll swindle we're gonna just fuck with these people take all the freebies tell me get. about the best freebie you got <laughs> the best or the funniest, freebie, the funniest or the biggest piss take because <laughs> if you were going in there consciously to hoodwink these guys there must be one that stands out as like that was when we peaked well i remember <laughs> we had this friend brig who lived in austin texas right and brig would like come to our shows and he'd get up on stage when we were playing and he'd like lift us up putting us on his shoulders you know get really wasted and just he was like our version of bobo from uh from a veil or like our boss tone or something like that our hype man right yep. So when we were doing this and being courted, we paid for a plane ticket for him to fly out and just like hang out. And I was like, look, I'll fly you out here, but you have to fuck with them. Anytime they're trying to be serious with us, you have to like make it stop and do something dumb. So I remember this one point where we're like in Texas somewhere and and the, the A&R person is like pitching so hard. They're like in the middle of their spiel and Brig is passed out in a pile of his own puke at the person's feet, just like lying there, like every once in a while making a noise or something like that. But the A&R person is really just trying to stay focused and not trying to pay attention to the fact that there's this like 200 pound person just lying at there at their feet and vomit. Um, but yeah, we really like put them all through the ringer. But it, that was fun, you know, that was No way, doubt, way man. It's, it's no wonder as well that the music industry went the way it did. I mean, you can blame streaming and downloading and all that stuff, but when you're throwing money away like that sure which they were doing for so long it's going to come back to bite you right and right. and i guess against me like a few of the other bands i've spoken to for this podcast in recent times were like the last school of people that got a taste of that and sure. saw what it was like before you know all came crumbling down yeah so you turned down the majors and you said we're going to go with fat again for searching for a former uh searching for yeah for searching for, for a, a former clarity <laughs> it's a mouthful yeah. um, our, our third lp yeah. right so we like we're like okay i i mean a lot of that was punk guilt too it was like okay you know like we're gonna stay stay true to our roots and whatever and so we stayed with fat 
Um, and then we did our third record, and, and Mike didn't really like it, you know? Um, he didn't like the cover art, he didn't like the track listing, he like, it didn't like Jay Robbins as a producer or like as a mixer either. Um, so we found ourselves... How did you feel about it? Um, I felt really insecure about the record in general, and that certainly didn't help with my insecurities about the record. Um, but at the same time, you know, like I wanted to be proud of our record, and we were a unified band at that point, and really like trying to do something. Um, but it was more just like realizing, okay, like, you know, we stayed with the indie under the guise of like creative control, and that uh, if you stay with the indie, it won't fuck with your identity as a band. And then we found ourselves in a situation where you're having to make compromises or you're having you're having an outside party interject into your band. Your, your label has opinions on your art. And so it just was like eye-opening to realize that, you know? Um, and so after that, it was like, you know, we didn't think the major labels would be still interested, but they were more interested. And it like came back with a vengeance and it was like a whole nother round of getting courted and a whole nother round. Hey Brig, are you available this weekend? Well, that time we took it more seriously. Okay. That time we were like, okay, we're not going to make a DVD about this. We're going to like, we're still going to take all the free meals and all the free records you want to give us. I'm going to play it smart. Yeah. But we're not going to like, we're going to, we're going to actually be courted and we're going to, we're eventually going to make the decision to sign with one of these labels, you know, whatever. And really just like whichever one gets up to the most amount of money, like just give us the fucking most amount of money. That's and what was what the, the final fee was what? Like 1.25, 1. 1. 1.5 million dollars. Uh-huh. But that was for two records. Right. So it was like a million for the first record and then half a million for the second record. And they had to do two records. It was what was called a two firm deal. And it really was like one of those last traditional major label record deals where it wasn't publishing. It wasn't merch. It was just records. That's a lot of cash. It was. But but also, I mean, like, think about it where, you know, you break that down to where, like, we spent half a million dollars recording New Wave. So, like, you already took away half your advance right there, then divide it by four people, plus the manager's 15% of half a million dollars. Yeah. You know, it's basically it's getting like, chipped down gradually, right, gradually. Each of us gets, like, under $100,000, which was still a shit ton of money, you know? Like, and we were all stoked, you know? Like, we're, like, amazing. We just... We're, we're making a living doing what we love you know and around that time was i guess when you were fully partying right that was when you went into um, the rock and roll yes and no like hedonistic I, I really like um it was really prior to searching for a former clarity like searching for a former clarity was a record that i was writing in sobriety okay and i like because we started work on that like 2005 was when we made that record and 2004 the year before that i was really partying so 2003 2004 which was the mastodon year tour that was 2006. Okay, so, so like, you came I, back around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like it. I, I do New Year's resolutions, and my New Year's resolution for 2005 was I was going to be sober for a year, and I made it like nine months, and um, I broke like somewhere in. We did a 50 state tour that was three months long, and so that'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll <laughs> break you. Uh, um, but nonetheless, like I still like came out of that really like. Uh, still healthier you know like than i had been like i i it before that i was really like in dark dark places and the but the mastodon tour which was 2006 which was like right before new wave came out like that was just like pure heathenism favorite favorite <laughs> memory from that one if you had to favorite pick one memory apart from taking <laughs> a, taking a dump in a box <laughs> yeah, that, that's is it literally like that you're like i'd like to tell you what happened but it's kind of a blur was it I was it that remember, level of yeah or, or, i remember hanging out in a lot of 
back lounges of buses like we're in right now and doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs> I love tour. those guys, man. Yeah. They're uh, especially Brent. He's he's just special guy. Yeah, they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Troy, I connected most of Troy. I really like Troy, and I got on really well. Uh, tell me about living in hotels and I guess sort of slipping into your own world. It seems like the longer time went on, the more isolated from, you know, partners, your bandmates, right. family, friends, everything you became. And sure. um, in the sort of mid naughty stretch when you're, I guess, coming more to the realisation of the feelings that you're going through, but still trying to distance yourself from them. Sure. What sort of headspace were you in during that time? Well... I, it was like 2005, right before Searching for a Former Clarity came out. Um, I was living alone before that, and I was like, okay, we're about to go on this you know, ridiculous three-month-long tour, and knowing that we were going to end up signing to a major label after that, I was really in the mindset of like, we are never going home. I'm never coming back from this trip. And so I put all my stuff in storage, and I had, I had worked out this scam kind of where I realized, because the band was members of all these hotel chain programs, that I was like, okay, we're going on tour and we're getting all these points, and I can use these points when we come back from tour where I'll just check into hotels and I'll just live in hotels for free, and I won't have to pay rent, and then when it's time to go back on tour, I'll just check out and we'll go on tour. It's a foolproof plan. Right, and it was great, and, and I, it worked, you know, and I lived that way for a year and a half of just living in hotels. When we weren't on tour, I would check into a hotel, and that was great. And, you know, it was like really like a self-imposed exile. And, and Gainesville, you know, Gainesville's a small town. It's a college town and it's gossipy. And when you're in a popular band, you know, like people are talking about you and they have Especially a popular sellout you. punk band, right? Right, right yeah, popular <laughs> sellout punk band. Was it the home people who were giving you grief? It was like they were still your friends, but it was like they were accepting you despite of the fact that you were doing whatever you were with your label, which is really no way to be friends with somebody, you know, like feeling like someone's like, oh, fine, I'll, I'll accept that about you. Nice you know, backhanded like, compliments. Yeah, it yeah. was like, you know what, fuck off. Let's just not be friends, you know, like uh, it's none of your business. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, and then I also like I had an ex-wife. So my ex-wife lived in town. So it was like, you know, coming back, it wasn't like I could date anybody. It wasn't like... You know, anyone I meet, like, I felt like she had already talked to and told I was a horrible person or something true or not. That was just, like, my mindset. Kind of paranoid. It was, like... And, and there was truth to that, too, where, like, walking into a place and realizing that everyone knew who you were and had an opinion about you and you didn't know any of their names was, like, it's an odd feeling, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, you become a stranger in this way, weird way. And then while it was cool not having to pay rent living in hotels I, I was exiling myself you know and that made me feel further detached because then i'm we living this weird existence that no one else can relate to um but at the same time it had a romanticism to it you again know? like yeah. you're living in hotels which is awesome and i was really like i i always i've always wanted to be a writer you know and i was like in that mindset of like i'm gonna live in hotels and i'll write all the time and and i was actually even working on a version of a book that parts of which ended up becoming the finished book um but uh it, it, you know it was what it was with that and then after that but i w again i was really healthy actually during that period of time because i was i was making good use of the hotel gyms and i wasn't going out and partying i was trying to stay sober trying to stay focused but then we'd go on tour and that was what would really break the sobriety and what would break me down 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tell me about meeting your second wife, Heather, um, on tour with Alkaline Trio. An amazing like meeting story. Uh, kind of interesting to hear that you know you sort of made enemies with that whole camp right. whilst you two were falling for each other as well. Because I mean, what was the connection with her and that band? And tell me about your first encounter with her and how your relationship evolved in its early stages. Sure. Well, f- you know, funnily enough, I didn't want to do that tour. I voted against that tour. James was the real Alkaline Trio fan, and he was like, "No, we should do the tour. They're great." I just never listened to them, you know. Um, but we, so we ended up whatever doing the tour and. Heather um, worked for the band, you know, sold merch for the band, and then also, uh, you know, did all their artwork and stuff like that. So we, you know, met first day, and um, I was really into her. And she knocked you for six, right? The way you describe it in the book is like... <laughs> well, she was, like, uh, coming out of a relationship at the time. I didn't know that, whatever. But I, I, everyone in the band, I think, was, like, not into the fact that we were hanging out. And they they had been friends with her her ex-boyfriend then or whatever so I'm, I'm sure there was reasonings for that or whatever and then also like I really didn't get along with Alkaline Trio's tour manager Nolan um, and so there was just it was drama it was dumb drama on that tour does he still work with them no he doesn't work with them he's he but he still tour manages I saw him like actually maybe a year or so or two years ago at a random festival or whatever and how was the encounter I, I mean, he still seems like himself. Right. He <laughs> still seems like himself. What a great way to answer. What about the band? Do you Did you ever sort of build bridges and make friendships with any of them? Or is that, again, like a, it's just the way it was then and it, will you know, continue it, that way? It's the way it was then, right? Like, that was like... Because they came to your wedding, right? They did, yeah. And it was like... That was it was important to me with the book to be representative of the time and the place. Like if I was writing about something in two thousand six, where like writing about like how we weren't getting along with Alkaline Trio, or I wasn't getting along with Alkaline Trio, I didn't want to go in and interject like reason. We're cool now. Yeah, we're yeah, cool yeah. now and talk about it now. I wanted to be true to the time and place, so that was really important. So like eventually down the road, you know, like 
I think things were fine. You know, like me and Dan Andriano did the revival tour, and like I love Dan. Dan's great. Like we got along great, and and uh, I had I have no beef. I got no problems. I was just trying to talk about <laughs> for the record. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny though because you say it is almost like schoolyard politics and drama isn't it which you know totally. is, is a massive part of this industry that sometimes people people don't see right and it's kind of funny if well, you're not in it it's sure got, sure and it was like a lot of shit was like high school bullshit, yeah where like total hierarchies you know and like seniors versus freshmen type stuff and well, you talk like, about the warp tour with um, no effects and how you sort of got chaperoned around with them which was super cool because fat mike was like the mayor of the warp tour and you could skip the dinner yeah. line and all this stuff and it's so funny that like you know in many ways as bowling for soup once famously sang high school never <laughs> oh, I mean, Warped Tour was, like, totally like high school. I mean, and specifically just that feeling of, like, you're standing in a lunch line, and you're looking ahead, and people are cutting, and you're, like, furious that so-and-so from whatever band just cut you in line in, for lunch, and you're, uh, it's just, it was, like, totally high school. Uh, there's a couple of amazing moments, which, you know, when, when you're going through difficult times in life, to have certain people of certain stature... As, as a fan of music, as an appreciator of art, and as someone who looks up to figures in your world, be that music, to have these people come to your side in difficult times is an incredible thing to have, an incredibly privileged position to be in. Um, I guess the first thing is when you get arrested and you get a letter from a certain New Jersey native by the name of Bruce. <laughs> yes, we're talking about the boss, Bruce Springsteen, yeah. That's spectacular. Yeah. I mean, he he was has always been really kind to my band, and um, he like we had met before he wrote the letter. It wasn't just a letter out of the blue, you know. Like he had, his son was a fan. Um, I actually just saw recently that in his he just put out a book, a memoir, and he he talks about this show. Like the first time he came and saw us play at Starland Ballroom with his son Evan, and uh, you know once we realized like oh that guy over there in the corner that's Bruce Springsteen it was like all of our minds were blown and he was really gracious came backstage like hung out took pictures whatever but it was really just like you know very generous to our band and in praise and stuff like that but I got arrested in like 2007 or 2008 I think it was um and it was like the next day I got a letter from Bruce and it was just like kind of crushing in that way and he said, I mean, if you could summarize it, because I can't remember the exact wording, but it's something along the lines of basically, if you're going to stay in the underground, then how are you meant to reach all the people that your music should be reaching? And how are you going to change people's lives if you forever stay right. in this place and don't challenge yourself and push yourself, right? And so he's sort of saying, go for it. The true potential of your band, like what you could potentially do with it if you limit yourself in those ways. It was really. It was, you know, a, a letter talking to like a lot of the things we were going to through with receiving slack or for or flack for being sellouts or whatever, um, and and that was like kind of the basis of the fight that had happened. Was I I snapped under those under that pressure? we were, uh, before a show, someone who didn't like my band who was like you know at a at a venue that was hosting a protest show against our show, um, and I didn't realize that <laughs> got in my face and I just like lost it. Um, but yeah and that was again you know you're not a violent person I know you I'll attest to that that's what two years of pent up anger frustration do you know what I mean? Because it's sure, like it's like sure. the bow was being pulled back for two years, wasn't it? And constant, you know, just berating and heckling. And more than two years, even more than yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because that was like that was like 2007. Yeah. Um, so I mean, like we signed a fat in 2003. So right. So double it. Four yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but uh, and and I always I always make the joke or whatever of like if I would have gone before a judge, I really think I could have argued that he had the smuggest fucking face that I'd ever fucking seen. But uh, that's got to count, right? That's got to count for something. I just don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so then, two thousand seven, you sign with Sire, yeah. which at the time is obviously as a punk fan, you're like, wow, Ramones, Talking Heads. 2006 was when we signed, yeah, yeah, but the record, our, our Sire debut came out in 2007. Got you. Uh-huh. Uh, and Seymour um, Stein, you know, quite a imposing figure in right. the music industry, an impressive sort but of... a legend. It's yeah, yeah, legend. yeah. I yeah. mean, Seymour yeah. Stein signed Madonna, yeah. you know, like, he, so many bands. So and many he's bands. still around, like, now, isn't he? He's still, like, scouting totally. and... And he really, like, you know, to his credit, like, more so than almost any other, like, label representative or A&R person was there like he would I, I remember we played here in london or we're not in london right now we played in london um <laughs> if ever you're doing an yeah. interview you just assume <laughs> don't you yeah we were in london this morning right <laughs> um but he came to the show and like stood behind my amp the whole show and dude's like 80 years old you know it's like hot sweaty bodies flying everywhere and he's like afterwards he's like that was like the alamo um <laughs> but would like go out partying with us all night long you know um but it was really like you know to to us like you know, we 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 did go with the label that offered the most amount of money, but at the same time, we were genuinely proud. To they be had some on kudos too, yeah. Because it was like, well, the Ramones were on this label, the Replacements were on this label, Morrissey and the Smiths, you know, like Echo and the Bunnymen, like so many bands that were like the Rosillos were on Sire, you know, like Amen. So many bands that we respected, and we felt like it was cool to be a part of that labels history in the same way we thought it was cool to be a part of fat records history like the catalog of music what was the response to signing if you were sellouts for signing with fat oh. or at that point had you just gone you know what i don't care i'm gonna just plow on and i wish i'd been able to be like that okay. it was hard to not pay attention you know like did it, the voices get louder did the hate crimes if you want to call them that against <laughs> the band get more extreme yeah, but it was, like, stupid where it was, like, okay, like, this person paid for a ticket and you're in the show and you just paid for a ticket to stand there and give us the finger the whole time we're playing, you know? Um, but to just be surrounded with that much negativity, it was, like, it bred, you know, and it grew itself. Um, and then, like, you know, people in the audience are negative. That translates to us being negative with each other. And it was just, like, a bad vibe, you know, all around. Uh, How was making the record itself? Obviously, working with you know another like real icon in record making, Butch Vig. You know that was such a positive experience. I, I say it all the time that the chance to work with Butch for both records, but New Wave in particular, like um, it, it was just like it made it all worth it completely, a hundred percent. It was like everything I wanted out of a record making experience, everything I wanted out of uh, a producer relationship, you know, of feeling like I'm learning something doing this. Like I am becoming better as a musician or better at what I do through making this record. Um, it was just really a great experience. I can't, I can't say enough about it, you know? To go back to your personal life around this time, there's this is the part in the story, right, where you load up on like eight balls of cocaine and ounces of weed and <laughs> tint the windows of your car and make the cross country drive from Florida to LA uh -huh. on that your own, right? Making, right before making white crosses, yes. How's your relationship at this point with your wife? It was good, you know. I guess I mean I like I don't know if I'm saying that now like with self denial, uh, but like you know, I was under an incredible amount of pressure and stress but the relationship itself you know it wasn't like we fought or anything like that or it wasn't it wasn't bad you know 
but did you feel like perhaps you say it a couple of times in the book that um sorry if i'm just drawing on the book the whole no, time no, as well. no. i literally finished it two days ago and it's all very fresh in the head and it's an amazing read um you talk about how you felt that you were having an affair right because you've got this dirty secret essentially and you're living a double life well that, that the, feeling really like happened i think after white crosses like um at first it was like you know driving out to make white crosses or around that period of time like my my wife was pregnant you know like newly pregnant um and i had like you know dysphoria for me in the past had been all these binge and purge moments where there'd be like a period of time where like uh it would come on really strong and i'd like give into it and then it was like okay i'm swearing off this behavior i'll never do this again i'm going to be a man you know or some bullshit like that and so what was the longest period of time you went without from, from that period because like right before signing to a major label you know like when i sobered up in 2005 it was like before that that was like part of the spiral you know as i was getting fucked up and i wasn't able to control like the dysphoria and i was like you know giving into behavior that like made me ashamed of myself so sobering up it was like okay i'm putting all that in the past i'm, I'm gonna be a man i'm gonna get sober gonna commit to doing this band we're gonna be famous we're gonna sign to a major label and that's you know and that's it that's and then the i'll future. be happy right and i'll be I'll whole be happy and i'll be whole and everything like that and that and i'll never have to think about these things again they'll just why go would i you yeah. know like um so that was like 2005 and so then 2009 was when it really came back um and that was after like things had really started to fall apart with the band and also like after going through um going through getting arrested you know that like being stuck in the legal system again is no fucking fun so not only having the normal pressures of being in a band putting out a major label release and having to tour as much as we were touring making the sacrifices you're making in your personal life but that add, a, add to that charges hanging over your head and like legal bills coming in and then immediately after getting arrested getting sued by your manager fired, right fired our manager yeah so then you have like this lawsuit hanging over her heads and then it's the pressure of like you know knowing like okay our first record for the major label wasn't a hit so like this second record you know they have to put it out but if it's not like immediately taking off they're not going to put much promotion you're gone so, right yeah yeah we're just gonna we're gonna get dropped you know we knew that um but at the same time like that was the only hope we had being that we were going through a lawsuit was like we have to make this record a hit so it was just like this incredible amount of pressure and stress happening and do you think anyone in the history of anything i mean not to say woe is me but reading that book hearing you talk now all of those experiences together people go through maybe one or two of them maybe someone gets sued by their ex-manager maybe someone's under the pressure of a record label to deliver a hit maybe someone's going through these feelings of dysphoria that you were you know feeling right to have to have uh, your wife expecting your first newborn child to have all these things at once that's a unique pressure cooker, right? That right. It, it, it must have... Stress, stress. <laughs> <laughs> and all That's that rough. stress, I was just, you know, give me a line of cocaine, please. Like, um, uh, but so, you know, I, at the time, like, when going out to make White Crosses, it was like, okay, you know, my, my wife took a trip to go and visit her sister in, in, uh, in Belgium or whatever, and I was at home alone and, like, gave in to the dysphoria, if you want to put it like that. Um, and and then like, which know, obviously for you, as you said, was 
kind of like a big deal because not only had you not done it for so long but you'd never really actually done it with any of heather's possessions right right so then like being in this situation but to me at the time i was like okay this is just like some weird thing that's happening again you know like i'm like once i leave and go to la then i'm done again you know like um and kind of just like gave myself that like window as like uh because it was like really um it was like a stress relief in a way because I was like I could breathe because I was being myself you know I didn't realize a lot of these things but it was like turning to that because it was it was an, an escape in a in a way where like I didn't have to compartmentalize something but um so like you know had this like escapade while while driving out to LA and then started working making the record once in LA and then swore things off again um but that didn't really last long you know how did your life change when Evelyn, your daughter, was born? Do you remember the day she was born, the feelings you went through? I do, yeah. Um, I mean, l it was pretty much literally like a week after we finished recording White Crosses that she was born. Um, so it was like, at the time, you know, there's the pressure of you're making the record, and I'm like, oh, you know, is the, when's the baby going to come? You know, that pressure. But, I mean, I just remember thinking she was the most beautiful thing in the world you know like and and just like so perfect um but it was so much stress you know and, and like the uh outside of her you know like of like we moved to LA to have the baby because we were recording out there and I didn't want to be living in a hotel room when we had had the kid um or had Evelyn and uh so we ended up like living in LA and then the rest of the band like left after we're done with the record. And I really didn't like LA. So I was really depressed, you know? I mean, I talk about this all the time that, that like, you know, like I'm, I'm manic depressive, right? And depression is a mental illness that's separate and has nothing to do with being trans, right? But at the same time, when you're like hiding a part of yourself and you're dealing with a part of yourself in a really not positive way, it certainly doesn't help the depression. Um, but so I, I was in real depression. Um, I really didn't like LA. I didn't feel any connection to the city and I was kind of like overwhelmed by it all. My mum's manic depressive and I mean, touch wood, she's been well for a few years now, but there'd be sort of breakdowns and episodes three or four times a year, every year when I was growing up. And the way hers would manifest, would she'd go very quiet and insular and wouldn't really say two words for a few days. And you'd be worried and you'd be trying to like coax her out of herself and she'd go so far into herself that when it eventually you know crumbled inside this i guess bipolar character came out the other side right. and you know she describes it as almost like being high like she doesn't remember a lot of the stuff that happens is that what it's like for you when you sort of have those moments of Sure. I, I mean, that's an accurate description because that's really what's happening, you know, like being high. It's because there is a chemical change that's happening within your body or within your brain that is affecting your levels in different ways. Mm. Um, I mean, to me, I, for me... Which is I, very different to being just depressed. Right, right. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, it, was, it always manifested in just withdrawing, you know, right. and, and becoming really quiet and not having much to say and just like withdrawing into my own little shell, you know? Um but that's something honestly like smoking weed has really helped him with you know like as, as opposed to turning to pharmaceuticals or anything like that like are you a big advocate of that then of medical the, marijuana yeah. for those reasons 100 percent. yeah mm -hmm. it's just been passed in california right of recreational was passed in california yeah it was oh right well wow. it was already legal it was already legal for medical but yeah it's recreationally legal now do you think that's going to be a nationwide trend that will 
you know? It's hard to tell. You know, I, I do. I'm kind of holding my breath with Trump now to see what happens, but I think that the thing... And that's it, with everything. Right. Yeah. right <laughs> but I think the thing with that, though, is that really what's making marijuana legal or changing people's minds is the money that's made from it. And that's not an issue of morality. Yeah, you know, yeah, Is yeah. that, like, capitalists want to see money. So if you have something, like, that's generating a lot of tax dollars and there's a lot of potential for growth, right, like that, that that changes people's mind where they're like, wait a second, that, how many millions of dollars are we talking Passed. about here? Legal. <laughs> <laughs> um, what time are you sound checking? Do we uh, need to wrap this up at any point soon? I'm probably just... soonish. Okay, um, oh, we're going to get to, like, the most important part. We're going to try and blaze through it. Uh, at what point did you decide I need to... Uh, you know tell my wife my mom my brother my band that i want to be a woman um well you know like that period of time when i was still living in la and i was really depressed i was really struggling with that because i was like at this point i knew the word transgender and i knew like you know i i knew what was going on um and I spent a lot of time like researching, you know, like looking at, there were resources in LA, like there were doctors that I could find and there were like support groups or whatever you want to put it. Information, right, yeah, was readily was available. But I was too kind of scared to follow up on any of that. And then also like, you know, we were going to be going on tour and we had that record coming out and it was still our last hope. And we we're still in a lawsuit, you know. Um, but oddly enough, like as that, as it progressed, and as like things got worse in the band and things got worse in the lawsuit stuff or whatever, it kind of became like a strength. It became like this one thing that I had that like in a world where everything else was full of shit, like I knew this to be true and I knew that no one else knew it. And it was like, it was empowering in that way. Um, but so, you know, White Crosses came out in 2010 we were dropped by the summer <laughs> um, <laughs> like before we even had a chance to do a headlining tour we re-released the record it's a great record though thanks i'll say that thanks i i love that record it's I'm a great really record proud of that record um we re-released the record on our own label by the end of the year and then in 2011 actually did a headlining tour and you know my plan then was like okay like i know this is like something's going on with me um we're going to do this this year of touring, light touring, whatever. Um, I kind of want to just like, in between tours, I just bought in the house. I just want to sit on my porch, drink beers, smoke weed, hang out with my family, and be just chill, you know, after the stress, like, because the lawsuit was over and like, you know, major label ride was over. So I needed to like decompress and make sure I wasn't just like insane or something like that. So I spent that year like that. We did the actually just experienced normal life. Yeah, yeah. experienced normal <laughs> life without stress. You know, yeah. the the touring we were doing, we were totally cho choosing to do, and it was all really manageable. Nothing out of our, uh, you know, nothing that was too much. And at the end of 2011, I was like, if the, if at the end of this year I still feel the same, then I'm I'm, I'm going to come out, you know. And I did. So in 2012, like about a month in, I I came out. There's an amazing, uh, well, not a whole chapter, but a couple of pages in the book where you're talking about New Year's Eve 2011 and you decide to debut uh, Black Me Out, Acoustically Just You. Mm -hmm. And you said that was the moment when you were looking around, you know, there's like champagne bottles flying around everywhere, everywhere and their own little world of celebration. And you're like, this is me sort of saying, this is it. It's happening now. Yes. Um, that must have felt like an incredibly brilliant moment in your life when you were like, I'm committing to this. Finally, I've decided that I'm going to yeah. pursue, like, an honest path. Sure, sure. I mean, like, really, uh, it was, like, 
it was dealing with trauma, you know, like dealing with like, I think each of us in the band who went through the major label experience, like have us have a form in a lawsuit, whatever, like have a form of PTSD from it, you know, like we all developed our own like things, you know, our own like ways of dealing with the stress, our own like consequences from it. And like, I needed, I needed truth. I needed to know something that was true. I needed to be honest to myself in a way I hadn't been in a long, long time. So it was like, again, empowering, you know, and coming out the second, like I said the words to my wife or said the words to my bandmates, it was like this rush, like I had never felt before. And a lot of it was terror, but it was still just incredibly liberating, just like so freeing in a way that I'd, I'd never experienced. And most people, you know, will never experience because it's such a unique, uh, I guess, almost like a wall to go through, right? And you're kind of stepping into a whole new realm of sure it's, existence. It, it's like a trust fall. You know, you're yeah. really like yeah, yeah. walking up to the edge, turning around and falling backwards and hoping someone catches you or so hoping something catches you, you know, or hoping you don't die. We'll have to do a part two of these one day, if that's all right, because there's still so much more I want to ask you. But uh, I think that'll do it for now. Um, final question, though, Laura, is okay. what was it like doing Blow with Harmar Superstar? <laughs> Let's end on the big stuff. <laughs> Harmar Superstar gets pretty good blow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that bit. You know, I mean, there's there's not that much of that because, you know, usually rock biographies are like crazy anecdotes. And I love that you occasionally just drop something like that in and hinted it. You're like, oh, yeah, that's all going on. But, you know, the book's your personal journey. And to bring it back to the book, like, you should really be proud um, of what you've what you've put out, and and Dan as well. You helped you write it. He should be very proud of, I guess, you know, being a, an editor essentially, right? And and fo- focusing the story in a way that it's incredibly personal, it's incredibly inspiring, and it's just incredibly relatable. Although the journey's not mine, and it's quite removed from anything that I've been through. There's so many parallels, and it's I think a story that anyone can appreciate and learn from and enjoy. So congratulations. Thank you very much. And the greatest thing is everyone loves a happy ending. And, <laughs> you know, the way you talk about the new bandmates, at, well, not new, but, you know, yeah, the, band is, the band as it is now with Atom Ings and, uh, you know, James, who's been by your side this whole time, it's incredible to see the just rejuvenation in this band that is evident on stage, it's evident in your demeanour, it's evident in the material you're putting out. And I think that there's going to be another book still, you know, a few years down the line, <laughs> but there's definitely, uh, you know, plenty more blank pages to be filled with against me story as well so right on. rock on thank you Laura thank you Matt Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.